came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing with about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Although you wouldn't think it, this is actually the longest exorcism story in Mark's gospel. Longer than the Legion account in Mark 5, even. It's also the last exorcism account in Mark. The first, of course, took place in the Capernaum Synagogue in chapter 1 and was a direct response to Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus's, announcing the arrival of the kingdom for the first time in his ministry. No surprise, you know, any demons in the area would have violent objections to his announcement and one just happened to be oppressing one of the regular synagogue attendees. Yeshua silenced the demon and delivered the man. And the people marveled. Here, after the stunning and provocative events on Mount Hermon, where he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John in what the Gospel of Matthew calls a vision, there will be one final demonic showdown. Again, this one will be violent. Only this one is violent in more than just words. Uh, we're going to have another self-manifestation here which is easy to miss, um, you know, which is Yeshua doing something that only God can do. In this case, receiving and answering prayer. And I have to add that although this account is in all three synoptics, um, Mark has some really unique features that you don't find elsewhere. 
Mark, of course, and all the different gospel writers tell the same story, emphasizing different facts, you know, in order to promote different aspects of Yeshua's mission. In Mark, of course, the focus is on Yeshua as the fulfillment of Yahweh, of the Yahweh warrior slash arm of the Lord bringing forth the greater Exodus or uh, the new Exodus, it's also called. Matthew is much more concerned with Yeshua as teacher. Um, you know, the second, one of the other aspects of Moses, which is a good thing because Mark almost never tells us anything about the context of his preaching, apart from parables. Um, you know, imagine life without the Sermon on the Mount. Imagine Luke without the grace parables and the good shepherd motif. Anyway, and I'm sorry I keep pausing again. Just, I am congested and, oh, my nose is just going like crazy here. Um, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of Messiah if you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website, now, past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that teaches them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. So let's get right into the text of Mark chapter 9. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So first of all, a little... House cleaning here, who is they? Well, it's Yeshua, Peter, James, and John. Where do they come from? Well, the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Hermon. Presumably, they are entering the villages of Caesarea Philippi on the slope of Mount Hermon. Peter, James, and John shared this vision of Yeshua's true form, and despite this being like the ultimate fanboy moment, where they actually got to see Moses and Elijah, but not meet them. And they are told by the bat call, the voice from heaven, that it is Yeshua that they need to hear and obey. Why hear and obey? Because the Greek word used by the writer is... Oh, man, my nose. And then I have to pronounce Greek, too. Akuo which is which was used um by in the Septuagint to translate Shema, which means hear and obey, and is the word um that is specifically used in to describe our obligation to hear and obey Yahweh. 
um, you know, repeatedly throughout the scripture and most notably in the Shema prayer of Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 through 9. And we have seen Yeshua use it many times in telling his disciples and the crowds to listen to him. Now, I didn't mention it last week, uh, but this is self-manifesting language. He's giving his own words of divine authority here. So they're coming down from the mountain, uh, which is another Sinai motif. And there's a commotion, just like when Moses came down with the two tablets. Uh, Moses, of course, encountered gross faithlessness because when he comes down with the two tablets, um, you know, Israel's worshiping the golden calf. And here in the ancient region of Dan, where Jeroboam actually set up his own idol, one of the two idols he set up, you know, that's where they are. So this is like paganism ground zero as far as ancient Israel goes. Now, what's the problem this time? Uh, what we'll find out here is that there is more to faithlessness than idolatry. So scribes, they've surrounded the disciples and we assume that they're perhaps from Jerusalem. But we don't really have any reason to assume that. You know, there are going to be scribes in any major population center. Remember that scribes wasn't... It wasn't primarily a religious class. It was people who were literate and who could um, write. They could read and write. Not everyone could. And they would do documents and, and that sort of thing. So you're going to have scribes everywhere. And because they could read and write, though, they were very influential and they could actually read the Torah. They could, um, they could write out, um, you know, rulings, interpretations, that sort of thing. So they were very influential. Now, the question here is what on earth are they arguing about? Now, whatever it is, it's really drawn a large crowd. Uh, Polisoklos, again, we always see references to the many of the servant songs in Isaiah throughout this gospel, no matter where he travels. Uh, verse 15. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Um, this doesn't always happen to him. <laughs> Matter of fact, yeah. Um, anyway, in Exodus 34, when Moses comes back down the mountain with the second set of tablets, the people were also amazed because his face was shining from being so near to the glory of God. Of course, we have no indication that Yeshua's face was shining and quite the opposite. What happened in the vision evidently stayed in the vision, but they were running up to him. You know, evidently, based on what we are about to learn about the activities of his disciples in his during his absence, you know, they've all been waiting for him to show up. This is this is this like okay, here we go. It's 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 a do or die moment here. Verse sixteen, and he asked them, "What are you arguing about with them?" Now. We've talked about this before, but disciples were an extension of their teacher. And this was true not only in Judaism, this was true throughout the Greco-Roman world. 
All right. So Yeshua had to find out what the problem was. He couldn't just say, come on, you guys, stop arguing. Let's get to Jerusalem. If he had done that, by honor, shame rules, Yeshua would have lost face, lost face, reputation, credibility, whatever, among the scribes. They would win by default in whatever their argument was with his disciples. So this had to be confronted and dealt with. Anytime there was an audience present, people in the ancient world were forced to choose every word and action very carefully to avoid being disgraced and discredited. And obviously, a discredited Messiah is no good to anyone at this point. We can never forget that the entire Bible happened within a historical and sociological context. Um, Historical is more obvious, but by sociological, I mean that the way people thought and the ideas they accepted about how things were and how they should be, you know, we do the same thing. Um, Yeshua had to operate within that reality. He couldn't create a bubble within which to operate. And sometimes people see that as an endorsement of this or that. You know, as people have shamefully done in the past with the institution of slavery. But really the truth was that he had a job to do, which was inaugurate the kingdom of heaven on earth and defeat the oppressive forces of sin and death. Things that didn't have any bearing on that, on his mission, he generally didn't outright address, even though sometimes he left us clues. Right? But anyway, he had to address this sort of controversy no matter how ridiculous it sometimes was this however was not ridiculous but it was really tragic and if any parent any human being really can read this and not just be broken-hearted then you know we aren't reading this for what it is which is the story of a real father his tormented son and our merciful savior intervening and not just intervening, mind you, but entering into the sorrow of it and bringing everyone else into this tragedy as well. And I may cry because, you know, I'm a special needs mom. And so when I, ugh, this, this is to me, this is so real. Verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. So. I've mentioned before that a man's students were an extension of himself in the ancient world. So bringing the boy to the disciples, it was the same thing in their minds as bringing the boy directly to Yeshua himself. But this isn't just someone from the crowd. This is the boy's father. He does address Yeshua with respect, but, you know, as we'll see later in the account, there is at the very least frustration in his answer. The boy doesn't have anything physically wrong with him, but he has a spirit that makes him actually mute. The word for this is alalos. And it's only ever used by Mark. And it's different from the word used in the account of the deaf Gentile with a speech impediment in Mark 7. But this is at the least of the boy's problems. Okay, this is every parent's worst nightmare. Verse 18, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down 
and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now, this is beyond horrifying. This, by the way, is not epilepsy. Epilepsy is an actual physical problem. It's a neurological disorder where the brain goes haywire sometimes. This, this is demonic torment, what this boy is going through. You know, we see demons throughout the gospel, but not all of them seem to be particularly malicious or violent. But this one is. If this had been a simple matter of healing, possibly the disciples would not have failed, but they did fail. In fact, this is the only recorded failure we see. So why here? Why now? They had ministered in twos before, and, and very successfully. Were they showing off? Were they competing to see who could do it, or who should be the one to do it? Goodness knows... They were often and very obsessed with their ranking. Or maybe in light of the first century beliefs about Mount Hermon, they were intimidated by being at the gates of hell, on the devil's doorstep. Or maybe this demon really was empowered by the locale. In any event, you know, the disciples were asked and they were not able. And this is incredibly shameful to their teacher. This is turning into an accusation about Yeshua's claims to authority and, of course, the scribes are undoubtedly gleefully jumping right in on it. Of course, let us not forget that the scribes aren't casting it out either. So, you know, there's that. Verse 19, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So what does it mean to be a faithless generation? It means to lack trust in the power of God over the enemy. You know, remember we saw this in my series on Isaiah and the Messiah? They didn't think that Yahweh could stand up to Babylon's gods. They really believed that Yahweh had been defeated and that it wasn't just him handing them over. I mean, there were some serious accusations and faithlessness going on here. And yet we see a lot of parallels, a lot of parallels throughout Mark. So sometimes we forget that the power to cast out demons isn't our power, but God's. Okay, demons don't care about Tyler. Demons care a whole lot about Yeshua's authority. The disciples at this point in the game, you know, they're about to turn south toward Jerusalem for his final Passover and the crucifixion. And they need to be able to function independently based upon their absolute trust in Yeshua's authority, you know, which was given to them when they were initially sent out on their ministry tours in Mark 6. And Yeshua is well aware that the time left is desperately short, and that they need to understand the unlimited nature of his authority and what he has granted to them to accomplish in his name. But right now, right now is not a teaching moment because this man's son is in torment. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him 
And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Like I said, this is one malicious demon. It sees Yeshua and immediately starts violently attacking the boy. You know, it doesn't cry out, but goes right to trying to harm him. I mean, this, this demon actually never talks to Yeshua. All the other demons so far have been verbally challenging Yeshua or begging for mercy, you know, that sort of thing. But this one really seems to be making a power play and holding the boy hostage. This demon, unlike the other ones, even the Legion, which was such a large group um, and was in absolute pagan, entirely pagan territory, this one seems to have a real healthy opinion of itself. It seems to be pretty confident, you know, call that chutzpah in Hebrew. Audacity. All right, so he's making a power play here. He's holding the boy hostage. And Yeshua's response is not what we've come to expect, which is to just ruthlessly cast the dang thing out. But then, you know, he loves to keep us from being able to put him in a box. And here he's going to teach us something really important. Verse 21 and 22. And Yeshua asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and the water to destroy him. Now Yeshua has to be somewhat surprised at how nasty and bold this demon is, and right in his face too. If it responds to Yeshua that way, what must this boy's life be like? So Yeshua shows that he cares by asking. In an honor-shame society, people often looked at the demonically oppressed as though they were sinners who were deserving of torment. You don't ask why someone else has hardship in a world like that. You just figure it's divine retribution for a hidden sin. Such was the tyranny of ancient honor-shame cultures. Yeshua doesn't ask, what sin did he commit? Or more to the point, what was your sin that caused him to be possessed like this? That's what his fellow townspeople were probably always asking. Yeshua instead asks the human question, how long has he been living like this? The father responds, since childhood. And he further goes on to describe their terrible suffering. This is no garden variety demon of lust or deception or whatever. This demon is determined to torture the boy until he eventually dies. And I want you to imagine the desperation of this father who has nowhere else to go and absolutely no hope. When he heard that Yeshua was in the area, he brought his son only to find the disciples instead. And one by one, the nine of them proved powerless. He loves his son. You know, if he didn't, he could have killed him and no one would have raised an eyebrow. After all, he was living in a pagan city and paterfamilias was a real deal. It would be almost another hundred years before Hadrian made it illegal for a father to kill his children, 
you know, on an impulse. Likely, the synagogue would have also turned a blind eye if this boy had turned up deceased. You know, it was only a matter of time anyway. But this man loves his son very deeply, obviously. Caring for this child would have been difficult and it exposed the family to accusations and shame. Plus, you know, they lived under the constant fear of their child dying or being damaged, you know, beyond repair. Now, my friends who have children with severe forms of autism often know this father's struggle and what life was like for the family. You know, no, autism is not demonic. I'm not saying that. But the danger to the child can be comparable to this, you know, you know, depending on the form and severity. Anyway, I will, uh, I'll be back in, in a few minutes here. This week's, well, the second half of this week's um, character in context, we're talking about the um, exorcism of the very violent demon from the boy in Caesarea Philippi. And um, I was talking about how sometimes people, you know, sometimes people like to um, try and normalize everything in the Bible. I say, oh, it wasn't demons, it was epilepsy. This one you have to call the Bible a lie. To, to do that too. This is not what epilepsy does. And epilepsy is not demonic. It's actually, you know, the brain, um, it's like the brain short circuits. Okay. It's the simplest way of putting it. And I compared what this boy was going through, um, to a very, very over the top violent form of autism, but well beyond that, because Autistic kids aren't trying to kill themselves, and this demon is trying to kill this kid, and he has been since he was a child. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're going to continue with verse 22 here of chapter 9. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And actually, no, I ought to phrase it a little bit different. I think he said it like, but if you can do anything, you know, have compassion, help us out. I think he's frustrated here. And we can forgive his rebuke here in disbelief. You know, we can hardly imagine the day-to-day -day realities of his life up to this desperate moment. <clears throat> he can scarcely hope at this point that, you know, with the abject failure of Yeshua's disciples, that the teacher will be able to do any better. But he does beg for mercy and he does ask for help. And I want to compare this to the cry of the leper in chapter one, who says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You know, this time he's seen too much failure to be so generous with his face. He says, if faith, if you can do anything. Verse 23, and Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And some scholars, they say this is tongue in cheek and Yeshua is being playful. But I can't imagine 
that those people have ever had to deal with a developmentally disabled child who could fly out of control. It's terrifying beyond belief, and this would take that up like a million notches because there's a demon with whom they've been dealing for years, okay, for years actively trying to kill her son. This isn't funny. This is desperate. Yeshua didn't ask about the boy's plight so that he could make light of the situation. He humanized this boy for the crowd. He's not going to turn the situation into any sort of lighthearted mockery now. But right now, <clears throat> excuse me, the man needs to snap out of it. You know, out of this well-earned fatalism. He needs to believe, and he needs to believe now in the presence of Yeshua. This man has challenged Yeshua, and Yeshua volleys the challenge back. I can do this, but you, but can you take this seriously enough to muster trust that God can overcome this? And, um, you know, every parent of a significantly special needs child has, on many occasions, reached the end of their rope. I can think of times, you know, that I was falling apart. And then something or someone would, you know, snap me out of it because my son needed me and I couldn't afford not to be strong for him. You know, this last time with Andrew back in the hospital in November for the second surgery, second and third surgery in within six weeks and, and neurosurgery at that, you know, I'd never been so scared in my life. And watching him in agony, you know, that drugs couldn't do anything about because his brain was being crushed from the inside and still being stressed out from the surgery in October. You know, I, I lost it at one point. I just, I absolutely lost it. I didn't know if I was ever going to get my kid back alive or with his personality intact. But there came a moment when I needed to snap out of it. Every parent who has been through this can tell you the same thing. And it works with this dad, too. Okay, what Yeshua said, it pierced his heart and focused him on the goal again. So, verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe! Help my unbelief! So, the father immediately snaps out of it and cries out, ironically because his son is mute and cannot cry out for himself. I believe. Help my unbelief. Pistuo, uh, I'm sorry, Pistuo and uh, Apistia are um, both related to Pistis, translated as faithfulness in the fruit of the Spirit. Um, you know, but it can have a lot of different nuances. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat is just going nuts here. It can mean trust or allegiance, but what it doesn't mean is just empty belief, like agreeing to something. Like, you believe that it's a bad idea to jump off the bridge, but you do it anyway. The demons believed that Yeshua was the Messiah, the Son of God, but they didn't follow or trust him. In the West, we're, we're focused on believing all the right things instead of placing our trust and allegiance in those things. It's one thing to believe in eternal life in the world to come, for example, and quite another thing to trust God 
so much that you won't hesitate to die in his service because you know he keeps his promises. That's trusting faith, okay? So what Yeshua is demanding of his father here is not mental assent that, you know, yeah, it's conceivably possible that the demon can leave his son. <clears throat> it's trust that not only is it possible, but that Yeshua has the absolute authority to do it. And I want you to notice something here that's very profound, but easily missed. The father's response takes the form of a prayer. I mean, would you come to me and ask me to help with your unbelief? Of course not. I can't do anything of the sort, and you know it. All I can do is point you in the direction of Yeshua and tell you to give him your absolute allegiance, and he will teach you to trust him. But you would never expect me to generate such a thing inside you. I can't. No one can. Only God can overcome our distrust. Now, this man, whether he was aware of it or not, just prayed to Yeshua and asked for something only God can give. Verse 25. And when Yeshua, or when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter into him again. Now that the man has placed his imperfect trust in Yeshua and asked him to do what only, to give what only God can give, you know, help in the area of distrust, Yeshua goes back to business as usual. Now, even though the man said nothing about this being a spirit causing deafness, Yeshua discerns the nature of the beast, so to speak, and not only commands it to leave, but to never come back again. So, this is a rare double rebuke of a demon. And it might seem odd because we don't see Yeshua having to add a command not to come back in any other account. But let's look at the nature of this particular demon. This is the nastiest one yet. Worse than Legion. Legion came running to Yeshua, begging not to be treated badly. The other demons were similar, crying out in his presence. But this one is so bold and hateful that was trying to harm the boy right in Yeshua's face. Any amount of hatred that isn't even concerned with its own well-being is alarming. All the rest of those demons were very concerned with their own survival, but not this one. It was just bent on destruction. So this one had to be told to never come back. And there are some who say that maybe there was a generational curse, but nothing is said about it, or that there was a particular sin, maybe of idolatry in the home. But, you know, nothing is said about that either. I think we just like to look for a reason why such things are deserved. Uh, but, you know, in any case, we know this boy has been possessed since he was little. And so I don't think we want to go there and say that a child can earn a demon. Just really goes to show how underhanded and heartless and ruthless the enemy and his kingdom truly are. Verse 26. <clears throat> and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. So, evidently, it can make noise, and it is still so evil that it either keeps trying to hurt the boy or is resisting Yeshua's authority to the very last, but it finally comes out. 
There is quite the debate within the scholarly community about this. Most seem to take this as a comparison. Um, the boy was like a corpse, while others take it literally that he was a corpse. It actually doesn't matter as far as the account goes, because the ordeal has been so difficult that when the demon leaves the boy, he at least appears dead to all the onlookers. <clears throat> and the people in those age, that age, they all knew what dead people look like. Me, I have remarkably never seen somebody who was dead except at two funerals I was singing at, neither one of those people were close to me. I don't know how you get to be 51 years old and have never seen a loved one dead, but I just haven't. I've been incredibly blessed. But these people, they all knew what a dead person looked like. Verse 27. But Yeshua took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So, Yeshua physically takes the boy by the hand, which is a very common motif in miracle stories that we've seen. We have the account with the leper, Peter's mother-in-law, Jairus' daughter, uh, the people in Nazareth, and also in Capernaum, the deaf Gentile with the speech impediment, the blind man who, you, who said he saw men walking like trees, uh, blind Bartimaeus, the little children, and the crippled woman in the synagogue. And pay close attention to how Yeshua uses his hands and what happens, including accounts like the breaking of bread for the thousands. Now, we also have to pay attention to the counter theme of what his enemies do with their hands. They nitpick over ritual cleanliness of the hands in ways unauthorized by the Torah. Yeshua says they will not lift a finger to help those burdened by their extra commandments. They use their hands to arrest and physically attack Yeshua, etc., etc. And when we see the apostles later, they use their hands in the same way that Yeshua used his. <clears throat> we never see them being violent, ever. I mean, after the whole thing with the Peter with the sword. Never did it again. But they're sometimes subjected to violence at the hands of their enemies. So, we have this pattern of using hands to give life and provision and encouragement and blessing. And then you have this other pattern of holding hand, of using hands, sorry, to harm and take and oppress and withhold aid. The hands will tell you who is and who is not following Yeshua. You know, I know I have to be very careful because my entire ministry is based on what I write. Even this teaching is being read from a script because, you know, if I'm left to my own devices, oh my gosh, I end up on crazy rabbit trails. And some of you know this. But <clears throat> Yeshua takes the boy by the hand and lifts him up and he rises. And the word for lifts up, you can probably guess if you've been listening to the rest of the series, is Egero. Our common word for resurrection throughout Mark's gospel but we also have a work, word from last week that I didn't mention, which is aniste, anistemi, which is the word used by Mark to recount Yeshua's words <coughs> coming back down the mountain. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So, the resurrection imagery here is unmistakable and no coincidence. The boy wasn't dead, but he might as well have been dead before Yeshua defeated this particularly destructive demon, you know, and bringing him back to community and the world of the living. <coughs> this was a cosmic battle of epic proportions at the place referred to in scripture as the gates of hell, a.k.a. Mount Hermon. Verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So, they go back to where they're staying. I mean, you know, they've been there six days, you know, before the four climbed the mountain. So, they had to be staying somewhere. And they actually do the right thing and ask him, but only once they're alone. It's like, what the heck? Why couldn't we cast it out? I mean, we've been able to cast everything else out and heal everyone, and this thing wouldn't budge. We all tried. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> and he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything other than prayer. And I know what you're saying. Whoa, oh, they're girly. Okay, I know that this verse says prayer and fasting. Okay, but, okay, there's a problem with that. You know that there are different manuscripts of the New Testament text, just like there are different manuscripts of the Hebrew scriptures before the Masoretes decided on the one true way that the scriptures needed to be recorded about 1,200 years ago. But you get scribes making mistakes. And you have them accidentally adding something to one gospel that's from another or on the wrong line or whatever. And it, and it doesn't generally radically change the meaning, okay? It's just an error. So we have some manuscripts, not like Marcion where he did it on purpose, okay? Which is why he's a heretic. Anyway, <clears throat> we have some manuscripts that are more important and reliable than others because of this sort of thing. And it depends on how early they are and, and how many manuscripts obviously came from that one and if it's a dead end or, you know, that sort of thing. So some later versions have pretty glaring errors that you don't find in earlier documents. Then sometimes it appears as though a scribe is trying to be helpful. And I think this was the case here. It's commonly assumed to be original because it ended up in the King James Version, but that just isn't warranted. <clears throat> and there is a huge debate, controversy over it that I'm not going to go into, but I'm going to post a link to, that's going to be in the, um, in the transcript, and that's um, from carm.org slash King James Onlyism slash was Matthew 1721 removed from modern Bibles. I prefer it to be just and prayer, and these are my reasons. None of which are I want to take away from Scripture. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, why do people assume that you can only take away from Scripture? Why don't people assume, well, maybe that got added in, okay? It's just this, it's this horrendous double standard, and it's very convenient depending on people's agendas. So here are my reasons. One, 
I am not adverse to fasting, and I do it, and especially in deliverance-related situations, if I know ahead of time that I'm going to have to do such a thing, which I don't normally. Two, we have Yeshua's own words in Mark 2 that his disciples, that, <clears throat> that it was inappropriate for his disciples to fast as long as he, the bridegroom, was with them. But once he was gone, they would fast. You know, are we truly to believe that he set them up for failure by not having them fast? If that indeed was the only way a demon like this could be dealt with? Three, I think that what we have here was a twofold failure on the part of not praying by the Father and the disciples, and I'm going to explain that. First of all, I think the disciples had gotten the idea that they were doing it was they were doing the healings and exorcisms themselves, okay? I say this because they asked, why couldn't we do this? It wasn't, what did we do wrong? Because I'm just going to flat out say that once we get the idea that we can do any of this by our own power, you know, we're just dead wrong. And even though... Um, God will work through us anyway if there's something he really wants to accomplish. You know, it doesn't, he doesn't normally, all right? But it was never them, okay? It was always God working his will through them, all right? And so we have to lean on God always and forever. And we can never forget who is actually winning the battle. <clears throat> we can fight it and lose and... <laughs> He doesn't lose. I think the disciples had experienced a lot of success, and I have to say it had to be something to have people dazzled by your abilities, right? Quote-unquote abilities. Not many people can hold up under that kind of adoration, and all the posturing we have seen from them is proof that they are ambitious and do not have their minds in the right game. <clears throat> they have their minds on worldly matters, but... That can't continue. I think they didn't go to God and honor him with their petitions and that he didn't allow this exorcism to work for even one of the nine. I think this was a reality check. Text doesn't say that. Just me. Okay. Um, but Yeshua also says that this type cannot go out except by prayer. If he included fasting, then that is puzzling since the text says nothing about him fasting. And that is exactly what he compelled the father of the boy to do when he said, you know, I believe, help, help my unbelief, okay? It was a prayer. It was, in fact, the kind of prayer that God always answers. God always answers kingdom advancing prayers, but not generally self-serving prayers. And a lot of times we have self-serving prayers that we pretend are kingdom prayers. Oh, Lord, make me great so that I can, you know, do wonderful things for you. <laughs> oh, no, he's not fooled. If you ask for wisdom or to know him better or for more faith or for better fruit or to be forgiven or for the spread of the gospel, well, those prayers are the very definition of calling on the name of the Lord because they advance his purposes in the world. The father asked for a good thing. Help my lack of trust. You know, I, I'm, I'm deciding to trust you. Help me with that. 
Now Yeshua responds to that prayer with an action that will guarantee the Father never doubts the power of God ever again. Now, <clears throat> before we close, and oh boy, we've got a lot of time left, I want to mention a quote from D.L. Moody. There are three kinds of faith in Christ. One, struggling faith, like a man in deep water desperately swimming. Two, clinging faith, like a man hanging to the side of the boat. Three, resting faith, like a man safely within the boat and able to reach out with a hand to help somebody else get in. And I love that. He had some really good things to say. Uh, and this father's faith was the first kind. Um, the um, struggling faith. You know him with good cause. He's been struggling to keep his head above water and his son's head for so long that he's just in survival mode. Let's just say that Yeshua, you know, just threw the man and his son into the boat and told them that they should finally rest. Do you think this man will have a quiet and private faith from now on? No. He's going to forever be talking about what God did for his son. And frankly, the community is going to be saying, hey, tell us what, you know, that guy did for your son again. And next week, we, uh, we're going to get another messianic reality check with the second passion prediction. And we're going to, um, the disciples, of course, are going to blow it again, as they always do after these, um, these passion predictions with some very shocking ideas that actually, you know what? It's not shocking because I see it happen all the time. But do we have the right to tell somebody else that because they're not one of us, that they can't do ministry? And Yeshua has some real strong rebukes for that, uh, that sometimes don't get tied to the story the way they should. But uh, we're going to tie it to it, and uh, it's going to be painful, I promise. Hey, if I hurt when I read these things, I like to share the pain. <laughs> anyway, so we'll see you next week, and we're going to continue with Mark chapter 9. Bye-bye. <laughs>